Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, church. How are you doing today? Here in the power of Christ, we stand. It amazes me that our life as Christians, we live our life from a position of victory. We don't live our lives from a position of defeat. We are victorious because Christ died on the cross and he rose again. He is seated on the throne right now with all power and all authority. That's where we stand, in the power of Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. If we haven't met, my name is Alan Warohio. Uh, From the accent, I'm from Kenya, if you haven't noticed. And I am one of the student directors here. So if you have a middle school student, high school student, can we talk after service? You agree to do that? Amen. Let's do that. Uh, We will be in Acts 17 from 16 to 34. I have a question for you this morning. Do you remember where you were, spiritually speaking, when the Lord opened your heart to the message of the gospel? Do you remember that? I remember I was in the 11th grade, and we had gone to this crusade, and the preacher preached through Matthew 7, 21 to 23. This is where the Lord says, there are those of you who will come to me on judgment day, and you will say, hey, we prophesied in your name. We did works of miracles in your name. And the Lord will say, hold up, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And I remember that message just cutting deep into my heart because I had been a fan of Jesus. I had been a lover of the things of the Lord, like gathering with the church, like going to prayer, like being a member of the Christian club at my school, but I was not a follower of Jesus. I had not surrendered my life to the Lord But glory, hallelujah, on that day, he saved me. You see, the gospel message meets us where we are. The gospel message met me where I was. And the Lord opened my heart to the truth that apart from him, I would live and lead a life eternally separated from him. Where are you right now, spiritually speaking? Where are you? Some of you, you're strong in the Lord. You have what I call a testimony and a song. Hallelujah. Praises to the Lord. But there is someone here today who is a fan of Jesus, but not a devoted follower of the Lord. There is someone here who is apathetic to the gospel. And yet there is someone here who is searching or even hostile to the gospel. Here is the thing. I do believe in everything in me that the Lord is able and willing to meet you where you are right now and open your heart to hear the message of the gospel and to make you a brand new person, a new creation. 
Here at Mercy, we keep the gospel at the center of everything we do. Throughout this series, we have been encouraged to go out and share the gospel, go out and talk to our neighbors, have gospel conversations with our friends. And I'm assuming that you are eager and anticipating having those conversations. Not only that, you are excited that the Lord of hosts has invited you to be part of his mission to save people for his glory. As we take up this commission, we need to always remember where the gospel met us so we are able to reach people where they are. So how do we share the gospel in a compelling, persuasive, and understandable way with people from different spiritual backgrounds? How do we meet people where they are? For example, how do you share the gospel with our family from East Asia that just moved into your neighborhood? They do not know about Jesus. Do you share the same way with them you would your friend who goes to church, but he is not a Christian? Is there a difference in the way we share the gospel? You see, the East Asian family might not know the Bible stories. They might not have gone to Bible drill like you or your friend but they also need to hear the gospel. To see a gospel awakening in the city of Charlotte that is carried out to the ends of the earth, our message of the gospel has to be clear, biblical, but it has to also be versatile in the way we deliver it. So today we will learn from Apostle Paul how to be ready in season and out of season to share the gospel with those familiar with the Christian faith and those searching and even those who are hostile to the gospel in our city. Like I said, we will be in Acts 17, 16 to 34. And in this passage, what we're going to see is how Paul shared the gospel without compromise, how he proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews in the synagogue and the Gentiles in the marketplace, and how he challenged even the scholarly skeptics who thought the gospel was foolishness. Paul communicated the good old gospel message, but he contextualized the message. Here's our main idea today, that the gospel meets us where we are, so let's reach people where they are. Now, I know I could have said the gospel met us where we were, but the reality is the gospel is not just the door, it's also the entire house. So both the justification and sanctification are the gospel. So even though at some point we were saved, we are still growing into the image and likeness of our Savior. So the gospel, even now, as a saved Christian, is still meeting you where you are. So let's reach people where they are. Now, I know I've said gospel like 20 times. And if this is not a familiar term to you, the gospel is the good news that God, through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, offers reconciliation to all men who will repent and believe in Jesus alone. That is the gospel. So our text, Acts 17, 16 to 34. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're not there, say, hold up. Oh, yeah, he was like, <laughs> just wait. Got my baby Bible. Just wait. Hold up. <laughs> to give you a little bit of context here, Paul was sent by the church in Berea to Athens to save him from some Jews who had, they had walked miles from the Salonica to Berea to beat him up again. So Paul here was sent to go rest. He was on vacation when he was in Athens. 
And maybe you who's watching online, you're on vacation. He took the gospel with him where he went. He was never afraid to share it. He was ready in season and out of season. Let's go through the text, making some observations, and then at the end, we will get some handles on how to emulate Paul in sharing the gospel, contextualizing the gospel, meeting people where they are. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Right on the onset, what we see is two things, what Paul saw and what Paul felt. He saw, it says in our text, that Paul saw a city full of idols. According to historians, Athens had a population of about 10,000 people, but they had 30,000 idols on the streets. The streets were lined with false idols, idols of false deities. And upon seeing this, Paul became distressed. He felt concerned when he saw the degree of spiritual emptiness in the city of Athens. This word distressed here can be translated to mean being carried away in anger or provoked, the kind of anger that is mingled with love. One commentator says it this way, Paul experienced a mixture of righteous indignation for the name of the Lord and broken-hearted compassion for the people who worshipped false idols. See, Paul knew that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and that we need to love our God with all of our hearts, our souls, and our strength. The first thing we see here is the reason why Paul shared the gospel. Paul could not stand to see God not rightly worshipped. Another reason is he could not stand to see people made in the image of God to glorify God and to find their identity and purpose in God, giving themselves to false idols. You see, it is easy for us in our city to see just a growing city, a city with potential, you know, the banking capital, a great American city. It's easy to think that there are no idols because we don't see 30,000 idols on our streets. But here's the thing. Idols or an idol is anything that we put ahead of or in place of God. So idols range from the things we daydream about, such as wealth, fame, and approval of others. The things we daydream about, like I said, such as wealth, fame, and approval of others. What we pay most of our attention to while neglecting our walk with the Lord. The things we spend money on or the things we get into debt because of. Our relationships can be idols. Our desires, what we fear losing, those things can be idols. Like Paul, we need to be provoked. Are you provoked? When you see people around you consumed by things and activity that does not have eternal value and cannot give them satisfaction, are you provoked? We ought to be provoked when those around us choose to worship many idols of modern culture and not worship the true God. But being provoked is not enough. Walking around just provoked is not enough. It's not enough for us to keep on saying, oh, these people worship football, or they worship basketball, or they worship this and the other. That's not enough. We have and we need to have compassion for people. 
these people who are walking around blind to the truth of who God is, we need to be aware and awake to the reality that the souls of men are at stake. The souls of men are at stake. Ever watched our show, The, the Walking Dead? How funny it is, because there are people who are walking dead spiritually. Their souls are at stake. Do you have compassion for them? Are you sharing the gospel? Paul was driven with this reality that in Romans 9.3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers. He was willing to die so that his brethren could see the truth of the gospel, receive it, and live in it. Do we have that level of compassion? Our first point that Paul is teaching us is to proclaim the gospel out of a love for the glory of God and a compassion for all people. If our love for God and compassion for people is not our greatest motivation for gospel proclamation, we will have a savior mentality. We will think, or we might end up thinking that we are the ones that save people. Or we will look down on people and forget we were, as they were at some point, dead in our trespasses, enemies of God. So to meet people where they are, we have to proclaim the gospel because of the love we have for the glory of God and compassion for people. Now that we have laid that foundation, the reason why we share the gospel, love for the glory of God and compassion for people, let's continue to see what Paul does next, how Paul reaches the Athenians where they are with the gospel, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It was customary for Paul to first proclaim the gospel in the synagogue. The Jews knew God from the Old Testament. They knew of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They were familiar, but they were still slaves to the law. And so Paul's pattern was to reason with them, explaining and proving that the Messiah needed to suffer and rise from the dead. While reaching people familiar with God's law, Paul's approach was to reach them where they were and point them to Jesus. I can hear Paul telling them that Jesus was the offspring who was crushed in Genesis 3, who would come and crush the serpent in Genesis 3, the son of man in Daniel 7, the forever king better than David, a better prophet than Moses, the one who would keep all the law and salvation was through him and through him alone. This should be our approach when we reach people who know about God but do not know God, because there's a difference about knowing God and knowing about God. The person who will come to church on Easter Sunday, Christmas, and every other Sunday might not know God, but maybe knows of God. And we need to share the gospel because it's very tempting to find all kinds of entertaining and safe ways to persuade people to respond to the gospel. Listen, if your friend is a cultural Christian, open the scriptures with them. Let the word of the Lord go deep into their hearts. We know that the word of the Lord is living and active. 
It cuts through the bone and marrow, soul and spirit. I don't even know. I don't have a category for that. But the word of the Lord is able to do that. Let's open the word with our friends who are cultural Christians. But Paul doesn't stop at the synagogue. You see, Paul doesn't stop at church. He doesn't stop at the Bible study. He doesn't stop at the women's uh, retreat. He doesn't stop at at, at the things at the temple. He goes to the marketplace. He's on a mission to meet people where they are. So he also reasoned with those at the marketplace. And he doesn't say he did this in a day. He doesn't say he did this in a morning. He doesn't say he did this in one afternoon. The text says he was there multiple days. And you know that this being the land of Socrates, he had to answer so many questions, but he was patient. He was patient and bold as he pursued and persuaded them with the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Our second observation here is proclaiming the gospel will require us to be bold and patient. Our Lord Jesus in Matthew 28, he gave us the great commission to go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them his word. The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 says, how can they hear without a preacher? You see, this message, the good news, that God has saved people, uh, rebellious people, requires those who have received it to communicate it. But proclaiming it requires boldness and patience. Paul had to have been bold and patient to go to the synagogue and tell them, you don't have to wait for the Messiah anymore. Jesus is the Messiah. He went to the marketplace and said, Gentiles, God is Jesus. He died for your sins on the cross. Look unto him. That requires boldness and patience. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to get into a huddle and we need to motivate ourselves to get boldness. You know, like those motivational speeches, you be bold. Tell your neighbor three times, be bold. Now, in your boldness, walk on these hot coals. You have boldness. No, no. That's not what I have in mind. That's not what our text has in mind. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus as he writes to them that they should pray for him for the sake of the gospel. He says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should, to effectively reach people where they are. We will need to be bold and patient. Let's continue to verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Epicureans were practical materialists. They believed that pleasure was the chief end of human existence. They believed that gods were not involved in human affairs and they were not, there was no afterlife. And this kind of sounds familiar, right? You do you. You only live once. Do thou wilt. Have you ever heard those terms? No one? Is it just me? Oh, okay. All right. Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They believed that God was the soul of the universe. To them, God was in everything, and everything was God. 
And this still sounds familiar. All roads lead to God. Coexist. The opera of religion, or whatever you want to call it. It's true that nothing under the sun is new. We're just copy-pasting this stuff. Now, these guys were not very nice to, God, to Paul. They called him an ignorant show-off. Literally, what they are calling him is a seed picker. A bird that goes about picking up scraps in gutters. This group of philosophers, they valued a coherent presentation of a worldview. And so to them, Paul's thoughts were not flowing or making sense. They did not have a category for what Paul was talking about. Indeed, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's God's power. Our world is plagued with the same kind of dismissiveness towards God and the gospel. The same way it was in Athens. Some believe that Christians are deluded and silly for believing the gospel. Maybe you are here today and you came because a friend invited you and you just didn't want to be rude because, you know, in the South, you've got to be nice. That's what I've learned for the seven years I've been in the States, living in Texas and now North Carolina. I'm like, everybody is so nice in the South. God bless you. All right. <laughs> Maybe you're here because a friend invited you and you just don't want to be rude. Or you're here with your family, but if you are to be honest, really, you think that this Christianity business is foolishness. You don't think it's true, and you also don't think it's good. Here's my thing. Please do not reject the faith before you have examined the evidence. Don't blindly reject the faith based on what other people have done. Listen in, lean in, and hear as Paul reaches the Athenians' professors where they were with the truth of the gospel. If you're with me, look at verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. By the way, it's a side note, don't you wish there were people who would just be, hey, I want to know what you stand for, instead of just they saying, this is what you stand for, and I know everything about you. Like, I feel like there's no space for us to talk anymore. It's like, I know everything about you, and you're bigoted. Bye. See you later. <laughs> anyway, all right. Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. This was their Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Like, this is where you went for the new dance, but the new dance was philosophical thought. We live in a different world. I can almost imagine Paul saying to himself, I'm about to change up the game. Like, I'm about to change it. Remember, at the synagogue... Paul met the Jews where they were by reasoning with them and proving to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, these philosophers were not familiar with the Old Testament. So Paul changes his approach to meet them where they were. And so he uses something in their own context to proclaim the truth that God is what they need and salvation through Jesus is their greatest need. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. 
For as I was passing through and observing the object of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to the unknown God. So smart, but there is something they did not know. An unknown God. I don't know if that stands out for you. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You're familiar with the constructive criticism sandwich, right? This is where you sandwich your criticism between two compliments. Paul is doing the same thing here. He starts by telling them, uh, he tells the Athenians that he has noticed their religious devotion, however misplaced it is. And then on the other end, he will give them the truth about how they can gain eternal life through Jesus. But in between these two compliments, two points, he critiques their worldview, proving that even though they were intellectually competent, they were religiously foolish. And we can make our last observation here. Proclaiming the gospel will require us to contextualize the message. Paul established common ground with the Athenians. First, he, he says he had spent time walking around their city. And I can see them leaning in to hear what Paul thought of their city. Paul, what did you think about the stadium that the Panthers played? Did you get to go to the Hornet Stadium? Is it, is it called a stadium? No, it's not. Did, did you see the ballpark, Paul? Now that they want to know, Paul, what did, what did you think of Monroe? Do you think Matthews is better than Uptown? <laughs> By the way, why do you call it Uptown and not Downtown? Conversation for another day. Paul gives them a compliment. He doesn't scold them for worshiping idols. He compliments their devotion. And then to draw them even more, he singles out one object of their worship. And now they are hooked. And Paul is about to give them the business. Paul is not giving them a way out. He is not affirming their idols. He is, not, he, he is recognizing that their idol worship points to their greater need to be in a relationship with their creator. And he is on a mission to show them the rightful God who deserves their worship. Yes. Paul does not start with... He has a better voice than me, though. <laughs> Paul doesn't start with, do you go to church? He doesn't start with, do you read your Bible? He doesn't start with, do you know Jesus? Because this crowd is a different crowd. This is the party all Friday and Saturday come to church to, on Sunday crowd. They don't know their Bible. And to reach them, we have to use what is in their context to draw them to the goodness of our Lord. They don't know the Bible. This is the East Asian family who doesn't know Jesus, but knows maybe two, three, four, five gods that, has, that have been structured by people's hands. This is that crowd. They have a God that they do not know. And Paul knows this God. So using his Christian worldview, Paul introduces the Athenians to God. Now we're going to go through verses 24 to 31, and we'll hear who this God is. I'm excited to hear God is, who God is. Are you excited to hear who God is? Yeah? Yeah? All right, let's go. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heavens and earth. 
does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. According to Paul, God is the creator and sustainer of life. Not only that, God does not need anything. He is self-sufficient. Paul is saying to the Athenians, ever wonder where the trees come from? The mountains, the ocean, Wrightville Beach? I love that place. Where did it come from? God made it. They were all made by God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his handiwork. Listen, the order, the complexity, the beautiful design that we all see is a result of an all-powerful creator and sustainer of life. That is God. Verse 26, from one man, he made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed time and the boundaries of where they live. According to Paul, God made man in his image and is Lord of a history and geographical placement. Paul says, listen, Athenians, listen, Shalotians. Is that the way you say it? You are not a product of random, impersonal, evolutionary processes. God purposefully created you in his image, meaning you, yes, even you, have intrinsic value. And Paul doesn't, doesn't leave any room for ethnic dominance either. He places all humankind on the same level, acknowledging our singular origin from one man, Adam. Not only did God create humanity, he also is Lord of a history and geographical placement. It's not a mistake that I was born in Kenya. It's not a mistake that you were born where you were born. It's not a mistake that you are here right now. God determined that. The providence of God guided you to this very moment. That's what Paul is telling them. And he goes on, verse 27. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from, one, from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image fashioned by human art and imagination. According to Paul, God is a knowable father. Paul is still building bridges. Don't miss this. He quotes two of their poets to emphasize that God is a knowable father. God did not make the world and then left the scene never to be seen again. He is a present knowable father. Not only that, he has being. If humanity gets its being from God, then there is no way that God can be a statue made by human hands. God has revealed his existence through nature. We went to summer camp the other day. We came back. By the way, uh, Jesus saved three students uh, when we went to summer camp. Um, Yes. And uh, we had... 
10 recommitments to Christ, which is awesome. And we have two students we're talking to seriously about accepting salvation. But here's the thing. We went to Asheville, and you can just see the beauty in the mountains. It is so cool up there. God has revealed himself through nature and what we can see. If we look at the beauty in the world, we cannot come to any other conclusion other than there is a God because the design is so beautiful. Someone thought where all these mountains and hills and trees fall into place. But God has also revealed himself through his word. We are reading it right now. But even more importantly, God has revealed himself through his son. In John 1, 14, he tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, as Christians, we know that our father is more than a creator God. He is our heavenly father who adopted us as his children through the finished work of Jesus. Verse 30 to 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. According to Paul, God is a merciful judge. Paul lets the Athenians know that the living God will not overlook their worship of idols. He is, not, he, he is the only one who should be worshipped. He is the rightful judge of the world, and he has appointed a day when he will pass judgment on the world. Paul lets them know that there is, they, are, they are currently in a state of war with God because they have chosen to worship idols. They have elevated themselves to a point of creating gods in their own image. They thought they were in charge and they could live outside the commands of God, they stood condemned. Do we see people in our society who stand condemned? Do we have compassion to tell them the truth about the gospel? Because Paul doesn't just give them the bad news. He also gives them the good news. He says there is hope for those who will stop worshiping idols those who will repent and believe in Jesus, this Jesus who was fully man and fully God, who lived sinless life, who was mocked, who was beaten, who was crucified on behalf of humanity, who was raised up from the grave and is now seated on the right hand of God, he has all the power and all authority. If they repent, they will no longer be condemned. You see, from Adam, the one man, we inherited sin. But from Jesus, we get redemption. From Adam, we inherited separation, but from Jesus, we get adoption. You see, from Adam, we inherited death, but from Jesus, we get resurrection. And we know this because Jesus himself resurrected. It's not a story. It's not a myth. He did resurrect. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was seen by 500 people. He is alive he rose from the grave, and that, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is the basis of our faith. He is alive. And as a result of that, verse 32 to 34, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, 
Some began to ridicule him, but others said, would like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, however, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Brothers and sisters, when we proclaim the gospel, we should expect the same response. Some will ridicule. Some will be reluctant. And yet some will receive this message. They will repent and they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ours is to be faithful to the Lord and proclaim the gospel. As we conclude, I would like to give you some handles on how we can meet people where they are. Because Christ met us where we are. These are not exhaustive, by the way. You can add a bunch of them. We can trade them on social media. But they are a good start. One, pray for unbelievers. When was the last time you actually fell on your knees and prayed for the lost neighbors you have, or the lost friend, or the family member who is an unbeliever? This week, we, had our, we usually have staff prayer every week, and Sarah, she led us to pray for the people of India and Indian heritage in our city. And we believe that God is able. We should have a holy expectation that God is able to change people. But prayer is the best tool for evangelism. Let's be on our faces praying for lost people. Like if we truly believe that the souls of men and women depend and are hanging on this message of the gospel, then who saves people? It's God, right? So let's pray. And as we do that, Let's also pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. The second thing is build bridges. What if we use the many connections we have to meet people for the sake of the gospel? The many connections we have with people to meet them for the gospel. We need to leverage our points of contact with unbelievers to reach them where they are. By the way, do you have unbelievers that are your friends? Or do you have just... Christian friends. Because it's hard to build bridges if you are not friendly with unbelievers, right? When you go to the store, do you say hi to the person who takes care of your produce? What if you went to that store over and over and over and over again and you created a friendship and you were able to leverage that for the gospel? The store can be the bridge that you use. Where you go to change your oil, do you just go and give your keys and just sit down and don't say hi to people and be like, hey, how can I pray for you? Those are points of connection that God has put in front of you to be able to share the gospel. People are not in your life by mistake. According to research, people are open to attending a church gathering or Bible study if you just ask them. If you just ask. How about while you invite your friends to come watch the NBA finals, you simply say, hey, you want to go to church with me on Sunday? You want to read the Bible with me? Hey, how can I pray for you? And see what happens. Just leave it with the Lord and see what happens. The third thing is understand the culture. Get to know what people around you value and treasure and point them to how Jesus can eternally satisfy them. 
than whatever it is that they're chasing after. A good book you can start, this is a, I think it's a good starting point. You can read Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. I heard someone call him Tim K the other day. I was like, is that like borderline disrespectful? <laughs> <laughs> also, honestly, talk to unbelievers around you to find out what they value. Meet them what they are. Build those relationships with a gospel in mind. The best way to understand the culture you're in is to talk to people. So talk to people. Find out what is it that you value the most and point them to Jesus. And the last one is engage the culture. All right, brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot afford to retreat and let the skeptical intellectuals who reject the truth, the existence of God, the meaning of life, and humanity's need for salvation to be the only voice in the marketplace. We got to talk. Everyone goes to the marketplace with their own presuppositions. Our presupposition is that there is a God, and Jesus is king, and y'all need to get saved because if you don't, there is a day of judgment. It's okay to bring that to the to the marketplace. There is nothing that God cannot speak into. Whether it's school, whether it's sexuality, whether it's politics, because these are the gods of our modern society, right? God has something to say about those things. So let us bring them to the marketplace with humility, boldness, and intelligence, armed with the truth of our faith. Let's engage the culture. We need to be bold and we, bring to, we need to bring our convictions to the marketplace. But we have to be nice about it. Not in a southern nice way, but in a gospel nice way. The gospel meets us where we are, so let's reach people where they are. Paul was on a mission to persecute Christians. And Jesus met him where he was. And he became one of the most renowned evangelists in the world. He went throughout the entire Roman Empire preaching the gospel because Jesus met him where he was and he was not afraid to reach people where they are. Are you going to do the same? Are you going to meet people where they are? If you're here and you're not saved, what's stopping you? Jesus has died on the cross. He's done everything necessary for your salvation. If you have questions, examine the faith. Ask questions. Jake would love for you to bring those questions to him. <laughs> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting us where we were, dead in our trespasses and saving us. Lord, we know you're the one who does the work. It's not us who do the work, it's you. And so we rely on you, Heavenly Father, to bring to completion what you started. Would you change hearts today? Would you send us out with the gospel for your glory, not to our glory? Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.